Blog Talk Radio. Great joy and good afternoon, my friend. The Nepalese meditation bowl is chiming, centering your mind and delight on the art of the CEO. The show that brings you the wisest counsel and most fascinating people in the business community from all around our terrestrial orb. I am Bart Jackson, your Hieronymus Bosch of business. And so what's so funny about business, about life these days? Is anything in this COVID lockdown era a laughing matter? Well, if you think your industry has it tough, my friend, I invite you to consider the entertainment performing arts industries. Uh, how bad is it? Well, we have one of the top professional comedians to give you not only the punchline of that question, but an honest insider's overview of where the entertainment industry sits now and how it plans to winch itself free from the chains of coronavirus imprisonment. And that gentleman is the soul-lifting artist of all things humorful and fun. Oh, you're going to love him. He's a great guy. Mr. Eddie Brill, one of stand-up comedies recognized best, Mac-awarded New York's best stand-up comedian for three years, running 17 years, warm-up entertainer and comic guide for David Letterman show, and, and on and on and on. Booker of Acts, hobnobber with all the uh, comic elites for decades, and he's just one heck of a nice, insightful soul, so there you have it. And because Eddie is a comedian, he and I, uh, he's going to give good jests, I'm going to give poor ones. So if you're looking forward to the fine art of comedy, or if you just want to understand why laughter is more important now than ever, pull up your chair and join us at this feast of wisdom, all carefully cuisined to make your career thrive and your adventures flourish. Eddie, I'm so glad you could break free and bring your self, soul, and wit onto the art of the CEO today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Ever since we met Bart, I've re- really enjoyed it. And uh, so I was looking forward to this for a while right now. I even set my alarm so I would make sure oh. that I would, you know, because, you know, morning hours are not comedian hours, you know. No, boy, boy that's the truth. You guys you guys pull it late all the time. Oh, gosh. Yes, yeah. sir. And, well, most of our audiences will be sleeping through it. So so at least you and that's I should perfect. be. perfect. Yeah, that's good. Sure, yeah. I hope, they, I hope when they wake up, they said, I had this incredible dream these Two guys were talking about <laughs> business, and, and then now they know it. I know everything. I have to go to sleep to, to learn. Wouldn't that be yeah, great that's, that's if you right. go to sleep and <laughs> yeah, learn? that's right. And, and you know, I one time, I'll tell you the story. It. Sorry yeah. to interrupt right yeah, yeah. away, but um, I, was, I had a dream that I was on stage, and I, a recognizable comedian walked in who knew my act, and uh-huh. I started ad-libbing in my dream, and I wrote new material on stage in the dream. I woke up wrote the material uh-huh. down, and then I went that yeah. night to perform it, and it got big laughs, and I was like, wow, I, I need to go to sleep <laughs> more often because I'm writing like crazy in my sleep. It was cool. Oh, my gosh. I, I always thought it was at the bottom of a scotch bottle. Actually, uh, who, who else did that? <laughs> Actually, uh, no. Uh, Mark Twain. <laughs> Mark Twain did that. He everyone thought he was was a lush and a drunk, and he, he'd party, and he'd go to bed, and he'd stagger up at about eleven o'clock in the morning. The truth was, he got up at five a.m. and never left his bed. He's like like you. The thoughts came, and he he literally rode in bed. Anyway, enough of that. I'm gonna sandbag you if you right off if you don't mind. Wow. Okay. Uh, because I know I know you're a pro, and people come up to you all the time, and they recognize you, and they say, "Oh, so you're a comedian? Tell me a joke." So, what is yeah. your stock reply to that foolishness? Uh, it's you're good looking. That's what I usually say, <laughs> and 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 it because it happens all the time, all the hmm. time. So you know, it's like, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a plumber. Well, then fix my sink. You know, it's it's just an odd right, thing. Right. 
So it's just, you yeah. know, most of the time people really, really, they, they'll take a beat like, huh? And then they laugh out loud. And the only time yeah. it didn't work is when I was at the airport once coming back from Ireland or England. Yeah, yeah. I was in Europe yeah. working. I came back and I was so tired. And I, the guy looks at me at customs and says, oh, you're a comedian. Say something funny and go, you're good looking. And he took it personally and he went through all my bags. Oh. <laughs> he was angry. Oh. <laughs> but only that was the only time. You know, people laugh because they constantly say, say something funny, you know. And it's just oh, like yeah, when you talk yeah. to a, a vegan and they, you go, well, where do you get your protein? I mean, there's, there's things that people say right, all right. the time. And you just have to be ready for it. I, I guess that's so. I don't know. I always felt. I mean, you're, but you you've been at this forever. I, so you age like the the finest wine. You know, you're, you're just, uh, my my wife tells me I, I age like the finest milk. But anyway, yeah. uh, well, you know, yeah, that's a really everybody point that you're making here about. You know, in comedy, the the, the uh-huh. there's you can't really teach it. So what you the best teacher in comedy is stage time. The more you do it, the better you get. So comedy ages really well. Like, you know, when they, you look at a person like, you know, Phyllis Diller or Don Rickles or George Burns, they kept doing it in their 90s and George Burns up until 100. Comedy is the one profession, the older you get, the better you get. My gosh, you know, that's, that, that's really true. I hadn't thought about that. That really is so. And, uh, and people still, they, they still look, uh, you're right, uh, George Allen's jokes and so forth. Well, you actually, we all like jokes, and, and so I'm uh, here. You are speaking of being at it a long time. I mean, it's comedy. It may be uh, something that can go on, but it's very competitive. It's intensely creative. You're forever producing and performing. Uh, so what? What draws a person? What actually? What brought you uh, into uh, wanting to be a, a, a comic and, and a comedian and? Well, it's interesting because I never thought, I mean, I loved comedy, but I never dreamt I would do it. You know, my parents are very funny. My mom, the funniest person I've ever known, sarcastic, funny, sharp, you know, always made her friends laugh and always made everyone laugh. And we always were laughing around the house. It was always really Uh great. And my parents would go to comedy shows and they would buy comedy albums. So we had them in the house all the time. You know, and they let me stay up late if a comedian was on The Tonight Show. And I saw George Carlin on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, just what you said. Oh, my God. You know, it's like, (laughs) you know. And I've always played with words, and I've always had a lot of fun with language. And once I saw George Carlin, I went, oh, my God, that's what I, the way I think in that same vein. And, uh, you know, so that kind of got me interested. But I never thought I'd do it. Then I went to college in Boston at Emerson College to study journalism, broadcast journalism, and do some radio, something like that, sports radio. And I met all these amazing people. you did something special, Eddie. You you founded the Emerson Comedy Club with Norman Lear, right? Yeah, you know, in 1978, Norman Lear, who graduated Emerson College, uh, he right. came to the school, and him and I talked, and we worked out a, a plan to create a comedy uh, division at the college, and now people can go to Emerson and major in comedy writing and comedy performance. So, you know, that's over, you know, 42 years ago uh, as of this uh, taping. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really a great feeling to know that something that was a seed way back then has, you know, turned into a thing where there's a lot of comedians who now – have careers because of an idea you had a million years ago. So it's really nice. 
Oh, Eddie, that's, boy, you, you, well, you've always been helping new talent come in, but, but you, you were helping it before you were a talent on, on your own. Exactly. Uh, I think that's, that's amazing. And Eddie, you, you, and this I'm going to, to ask you, uh, uh, everyone wants to know, and, and, and I love it. You booked comedians for years. You do the Johnny Carson, um, uh, Memorial show. I'm, I've got the title wrong. I'm sorry, but it's uh, you booked acts for every and that honored Johnny right. Carson in town. So I was the architect for the and the blueprint of that festival and booked all the talent for it. Fabulous. What? It, what it, anyway, what I guess what I'm asking is, what does it take uh, to be? You say you can't teach it uh, when you're hiring no. an act. What do you look for? I know I've heard you say uh, I look for Nina Simone, and I don't think of her as a comic. So, 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 what does it take to make a good? Com- what, what makes a good comedian? A comedian, you know, you, you could really tell the great artists by the their soul. You you look below the surface, and you can see that they're just telling their truth, and they're not um, trying to please the audience or please anyone. They're telling their truth, and that's the. That, when you could see that, that's the most alluring uh, performer. That's why I say when you see Nina Simone, you just, you know, her body opens up and in comes out this incredible soul. And that's what I find when I find comedians. When I see a comedian, it's just telling their truth. And, again, one of the things that a lot of people make a mistake is they're trying to please people. And then, you know, that keeps you from being your truth, your your. You're trying to, you know, it's great when the audience likes what you're doing, and it's nice when, when they, when they uh, you know, applaud or appreciate or laugh at the stuff. You do more laugh than applause. But, you know, it's, if you're up there and you're calling the shots and you're getting below the surface and really talking about the things that matter to you and making people laugh at it, um, that's, I, that's the thing I could see. That's the thing I've learned. And I've been book, booking comics for 36 years. I ran a comedy club. This this week is uh, you know when we're recording is the 36th sure. anniversary of the club that I started in the in the West Village and I booked all these great young comedians that you know we were all young together and they all had that thing in common and when I booked the Johnny Carson Festival you know when it was my you know festival kind it wasn't my my festival but when I was in charge of the booking for the festival I looked for people who I felt had something that nobody else had like. Someone says, you know, you're another Jim Carrey or you're another Lily Tomlin. I'm looking for Lily Tomlin. I'm looking for Jim Carrey. You know yeah, I mean? right, I'm yeah. For, I'm not looking for another someone who's doing the exact same thing as somebody else. Right, I'm yeah, we, we don't need the next Robin Williams. I got you. Yeah, right, we have it. If you've just joined us, you're listening to The Art of the CEO Radio Show, uh, which every Tuesday 2 p.m. streams lavishly into your waiting ears across the mightily misunderstood realms of cyberspace, <laughs> where you may listen and download this and all our episodes by visiting theartoftheceo.com. We are on several radio stations, but to get all the episodes, I just go straight to the website, theartoftheceo.com. Now, Eddie, for an amazing 17 years, you stood as the warm-up act, um, and I want to find out a little bit about how that, uh, for, for the David Letterman show, but I, since you, you brought it up about what makes the comment and, and getting the truth, uh, I, I, you know all the, the late night, the, the, the personalities, I mean, I, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to find three entirely different personalities than Johnny Carson, Jay Leno, and David Letterman, yet 
each of these guys, they made the top late night TV spots. This is the most the zenith of any entertainer's career. And what? So what did these three have that made them legendary? Well, I, you know, I, I I will say that Johnny and Dave were very similar. They're Midwestern guys. Dave from Indianapolis huh. and John from Nebraska. Uh, originally born in Iowa, but grew up in uh, Norfolk, Nebraska. Now, these guys were, you know, Abbott, born in uh, Nebraska. You know, these incredible Midwestern fellas that I just mentioned are, you know, all amazing human beings, very down-to-earth and and have a dry, funny style. Um, There's a vulnerability and a strength and a silliness and an edge that Letterman and Carson had. And, of course, you know, Letterman worshipped the ground that Johnny walked on, and understandably, and Johnny loved Dave like a son. So, you know, those two guys, I would say, are similar, of course, but different. But Jay was different. Uh Jay was one of the best stand-up comics, and still is one of the best stand-up comics you've ever seen. And Jay is a different kind of a guy. He's, uh, you know, he's more like, he's he's more of a pleaser. You know, he works the middle of of the... of the middle of the road, which is, and there's nothing wrong with that because he was wildly right. successful and the most popular guy who did, did it because in, in our country, in our world, there's more uh-huh. of that kind of thinking where it's look, we don't want to think, we don't want to, you know, we just want to be silly and we want to laugh and we want, you know, and Jay, will, and I will tell you this, I work with Jay, he's one of the greatest stand up comics ever. But I wouldn't put him in the category of Letterman or Carson or Steve Allen or Jack Parr or Joan Rivers mm. or Dick Cavett, you know, because the, those were real broadcasters. Those were, you know, those were yeah. incredible hosts. Where Jay, I wouldn't say he's the best host, but he's, he's just, he really handled his job really well, deservedly was number one in the country, and, you know, and I'm happy for him. Well, I, I'm glad you added that because, and you you said something that I wanted to go on is that that uh, Letterman and uh, and Johnny Carson, I always forget the idea. His whole goal was to make his guests look good, and this is something that that I try to do. And I I have I personally have been on radio shows where the host does does nothing but try to tell people how fabulous he is. Uh, and yeah, I uh, I'm sure you've run into that too, but it's yeah that. that you're there. I think it's interesting that you say that, that you know you know the difference between a, a player and a pleaser. I I always feel that in business, people and it's you look at sales because you're in a sense selling your jokes. Yeah. People know the difference instantly between a player and a poser. I mean, the yeah. average Joe does. I mean, it really is true, right? Yeah, because you feel it. You know, whether you know it, you feel it deep down inside, and whether you're in touch with that feeling. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it's better when you are and makes you a better salesperson or makes you a better hirer. Um, but, you know, what, but once you're, you, there's a sense that you get from someone like, you know, Johnny and Dave, you know, I could talk about them because they're my heroes. You know, the, the, sure. the first half of the show was them and their monologues and their skits and their playing. But the last half of the show was the guests. And it was now their time as, um, being, you know, number one was not there, uh, was was over. It was time now for them to highlight their guests and to interview them the best possible way. And I will say that, you know, Johnny, Dave, and, and I would put Dick Cavett in, in that same category as three oh, people totally. who were the best hosts because they let the guests talk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Well, now, you had 
an amazing role that I didn't even know existed until we met. Uh, you, uh, well, you did. Sort of, you you booked the acts, but that, what I'm talking about it was that you were the warm-up comic for the David Letterman uh, for, for David Letterman on on, on his show. Uh, I take. I guess they all had all, all all the late night shows said this. Could you tell us about that? How did that go? What did you do? And what were you responsible for? Well, yeah, every TV show that has an audience has a warm up person. You know, I did it for many shows before Dave, and that's how I got the Dave show by someone who worked. I worked at the Dana Carvey show, warming up the audience before Dave, and one of the writers over there recommended started working for Dave, and then recommended me. You know, for for Dave's show, but I had warmed up other shows like This Is Your Life. There was this fantastic show called Madigan Men with Gabriel Byrne that I was the warm up for. Oh yeah, for. sure, sure, sure. Yeah, um, I you know Saved by the Bell. There was a guy I was living in L.A. and one of the guys I went to college with, this genius producer out there, uh, called me up and said, Eddie, I'd love you to do this job here. We need a warm up comedian for this, you know, kids show. And the cool part for me was that it was literally across the hall from Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. But, you know, it's a job ah. that at, at, at every yeah. show. And if, and your job is to, the audience is not cohesive when they come in there. It's like getting in a car that's not warmed up in the winter. You need to warm up that crowd and to get them cohesive so that when the host takes over, that crowd is idling and, you know, ready to go. And, and it's an important job. That's why every single television show that has an audience has a warm-up person. So, you know, um, I came over there in 97, February, and I did it for 17 years. And it was amazing because I'm on the stage of the Ed Sullivan Theater every night where the Supremes mm. were, where the Beatles were, where Elvis Presley was. You know, <laughs> it, it was, I was on the, the, one of the best stages in the world every night performing, yeah, and yeah. there's band with Paul Schaefer and, and the folks and uh, and Dave, one of the greatest hosts in the history of the world. So, uh, And also, what people might not also know is that it's not only the Letterman who was amazing and Paul Schaefer who was brilliant, it was the best camera person in the world. Our ca- main camera person was Walter Cronkite's camera person. Our lighting people huh. were the best in the world. Our writers were from Harvard. Our, you know, our producers that. were just these genius people who you know, knew how to edit really well. And, I mean, everybody was the best that they in, in the business of in that field. So when you, you're, when you have a company and everyone in your job does their job really well, you're playing on a higher plane. So you bring your game up to that level. And that's what made that show really – we were a well-oiled machine. Oh, I bet you were. But, Eddie, you said one word that just resonated with me. The very beginning we were talking about, you said the audience is not cohesive. I have always felt that one of the great things about humor, about a good joke, is that, uh, you know, when, when I say, uh, our, our CEO says he surrounds himself with people who are smarter than he is. Alas, in his case, it's impossible to do otherwise. All right, everybody, you right. pull the people together because they know there's a commonality of point they understand. Jokes about taxes, whatever. And you, how do you make the group co- cohesive? What you do is you, um, it's, it's sort of, you know, that you, it's like a symphony with you and the audience. And your job is to work them not only with words, but with, you know, nonverbal communication skills as well. Um, you know, Johnny Carson's producers, Freddie de Cordova and all those folks, they, they learned how to work an audience and they taught Dave how to do it. And Dave, you know, taught the staff how to do it. And what we did, I come out, we had 18 minutes. We sat 
say the show was taping at 4.30 that day, because it taped a couple of different right. times. So at 4 o'clock exactly, zero, zero, 4 o'clock, zero, zero, the doors would open up, the audience would be seated. At 4.12, zero, zero, I came out. We, I showed a video uh. for five minutes that sort of showed what the show was about, um, like funny things from the Dave Letterman show. I had him for five to myself. I brought out the band for five, and then it, it was three minutes to go. I brought Dave out. He talked to the audience, and then at 4.30, zero, zero, the band would play. So it was a rhythm that, that built. We had this symphony going that was, you know, just beautifully, and these, uh, the audience was swept up in it in such a beautiful fashion. And it wasn't a trick. It was more like a, hey, let's play together kind of a feeling. And that thing we talked about way earlier in the conversation is like, you know, you're not playing. You're not, you're not, you're, you're being honest. You're, you know, comedy, the foundation for the best comedy for me, in my opinion, is the truth. Because if you have the truth, uh-huh. then you can, you can skew from there. But if you have no truth in your foundation, you have no trust, you have no, you know, no one really knows wh- where you can go from there, and you confuse people, and it's crazy. When we did the warm-up and we had that showdown, we came out with a confidence, and the audience had no choice but to jump on board. And by the time we were ready to start, that place was on fire. Now, how did you did you you wrote all your material for that, right? Your yeah, own material. Yeah. And wow. it wasn't so much material. I did maybe one or two jokes, um, because what you know, and I call them jokes, but they're very different. You know, where I'm a, I'm an observational comic. I you know, and I'm play with words and that kind of thing. But I kind of told them what we expect from them. You know, sort of. You know, uh, it's hard to remember exactly the order of the way I did it, but I let them know that they're the soundtrack to the show because they are. Their laughter is real, and and if they laugh, then the show does better. If they're silent and they're quiet and they're exhausted and they're not paying attention, well, that's our soundtrack. But we want the soundtrack to be Ennio Morricone good. You know what I mean? We want it to be amazing. Right. So I let that. I, I let them know how great how important they were to us and how we wanted them to pay attention and be involved. And, and they, you know, it makes people feel good when they know they're involved that, you know, not treating them as second class citizen or, you know, even worse than that. So, you know, and it was true. It was, and and it was honest. It was, you know, we all wanted it to be great. And then we had, the show was over and we had to forget everything and start again the next day. And with the writing and the producing and the creating and the warm up and the Dave and the interviews and the songs and the setup every you day. You didn't we do had just that, that though. I mean, and by that I mean it went on, and I know, but but you also, I mean, you that was one of certainly seventeen years a long gig, but it's but you have done stand up for uh, dozens of other things, and through it all, you've had to develop the Eddie Brill style of comedy. So yeah. I, I'm curious, what is the Eddie Brill style, and and more and almost more importantly, how do you polish it and hone it? I mean, I'm a young comedian. I want to get going. I want to do, do stand up, or, or uh, how do I polish that? How do I? What, what's your style, and, and how do how do you? Well, polish here's it? the here's the thing. You know, I've always loved words and wordplay, and and like I said, I love George Carlin. So at the beginning, oh, at yeah. most comedians, most comedians act like a comedian. And the key, because you act like your favorite comedian, because you don't know what it's like to be yourself. You know, you you're never really studying yourself. So you know, I my first bit, I had the rhythms of George Carlin. You know, how can you have a word like this when the, you know that almost sounded like Seinfeld? Right, right. It was it was you know you have to you you create 
at the beginning, and what, here's a great statement. Somebody said to Michelangelo, how did you make that incredible statue of David out of that piece of marble? And he said, I just chipped away at the pieces that weren't him. And that <laughs> is amazing because that's what you do as a performer. You get rid of all the BS that's not you. You chip away all the garbage, and you're left with your most vulnerable self. And by, telling, by having your vulnerability be your strength and the truth being your foundation, then you start talking about stuff, your truth that I said earlier. You come out and you right. tell your truth, and, then, and the audience senses that. And, they, and if you're, you know, you can't teach someone to be funny. You're either funny or you're not. And, you know, there's right. all kinds of comedy, and there's no rules really in comedy, you know, that, you know because if there are rules, we would have it, never had like any business. Well, the rule, the one rule is what works. Yeah, right. That's exactly right. It's the one rule, the rule that works. So for me, the more I chipped away at the pieces that I weren't, that I wasn't, or weren't. There's my English for you. The uh, the more I chipped away, the more I found out who I was. The more I found out who I was, I was able to tell my truth, and then that made you know me more powerful on stage. And then. Again, the teacher is stage time. The more you get on stage, the more you develop your stage legs. So you're up there and you're comfortable right, and right. you sense of that. And it's also the nonverbal. Like we're doing a conversation. You don't see, we don't see each other while we're doing right, the interview. Right. And the audience doesn't see each other. So we're filling space that way. But when you're performing visually, there's a lot of nonverbal communication. You know, talking is only one form you got, of communication. You got legs and hips. You got the whole thing that the, you got the half they the half that they cut off of Elvis is now being shown on you. Exactly. So. And they, that's another interesting thing. The difference between Letterman and Leno when they would have the show. When Letterman had a comedian on the show, they would do what they call a three quarter shot. That's like from the thighs up, and three quarters of the body. And that's you would be a straight on shot. And all you saw was the comedian in the background. With the Leno show, there were two shots. And you'd see Leno in the background on some of the shots. And if you're an audience uh. member, it pulls focus. Because what you're doing is you're looking at Leno. Is he laughing at the comedian? You know, and that works against the comedian. Because what you're doing is you're pulling the focus. Of, you, the focus should be on the stand-up. Now, I understand that oh, the comedian gets a be. big laugh. Yeah, the focus should be on the stand-up. But if the focus is now takes you off and makes you look at something else, then you're not focusing on what you're doing. So you're creating. That's absolutely this true. Other, yeah, I, I see it. You put it right to us, Eddie. This is this is fabulous. Uh, my my friend Eddie Brill is going to continue to live in our lives with his wit and insight and the talk. And we're going to talk about the sagging entertainment industry uh, right after you and I take a brief sorbet from today's Feast of Wisdom. And uh, so I will offer you, if I may, a few utensils for today's feast. And the first utensil, as I always do, allow me to remind you, hearing my voice, that the good Lord has gifted you with the title and privileges of Chief Executive Officer of yourself. And since that's really the most important position you'll ever hold in your career, may I ask, will this be the day that you forge your own armor against the COVID assault uh, by jovially sharing some intriguing tale with three folks whom you'd like to know a little better and may profit you? 
Or will you continue to let friendship die of neglect while you sit in despair reading global statistics? The choice, my friend, is truly yours. And as a second utensil, I can sense you yearning to steep your lips into a little laughter and taste of scriptural recitation from the source book of business humor in the words of my wife's husband. All right, I am thumbing through it now. Oh, okay, here's the Kermudgepedia business jargon. Oh, here we are. A competitor is a fellow businessman possessing less talent, energy, product quality, and ability than you, but infinitely better luck, making her road a whole lot easier than yours. Uh, Eddie, what do you think? Ernest Hemingway said all writers are competitors. Uh, Are all comedians competitors, or haven't you met one who's as good as you are yet? I think that can get you in trouble. I think if you compete against yourself, then you could be the best possible you. If you worry about try to control the things you can't control, you get in your own way. So I don't compete against other comedians. Like, you know, I watch these comedy competition shows, and you can't, it's art. You can't say who's better, Van Gogh or Monet. You know, they're they're different. So if if you could just become the best self and write and write and write and do what it takes and perform and perform and perform, then you become your best self. Where if you think of it as competition, then your brain, part of your brain's working in a negative way that goes uh, against the grain. And I, I, it's we don't usually do this, but in the middle of the show, I think this is a good time. Ladies and gentlemen, Eddie Brill has just given us what a quill pen moment. That is a timeless truth of business and life. So I'd like you all to take your quill pens, dip them in the inkwell, and put down the, uh, what Eddie has just said. That you do that, that you if you you have to work to uh, hone yourself, and competing against others is a distraction from that that you literally can't afford. Thanks, Eddie. And if you smirked a bit over that quip, we have them literally by the books full. We have 101 best business quips, 102 best business quips. We've got the new in the words of my wife's husband. Just. Go to BartsBooks.com, pick up one of these, and your magnificent ideas will take a humorous luster that's guaranteed to make you the Zoom star of your next business meeting or something like that. Anyway, as a third utensil, we sumptuously spoon to you the answer of uh, the last, uh, our, our, I'm sorry, last show's business uh, quotation, and that is the name of the individual who said, the most indispensable ingredient for home cooking is love for those you are cooking for. Those words were spoken by none other than the alluring movie star who inspired a great many appetites all on her own, Miss Sophia Loren. So congratulations to all you winners. Stick with us, because later on in the show, Blurting Your Way, comes another enriching quotation. And if you are among the learned souls who knows the author of that quote, simply scribble that sage's name down as you believe him or her to be and email it right off to info at bartsbooks.com. That's I-N-F-O at bartsbooks.com. And if you are correct, your knowledge will earn you a mind, soul, and career-igniting gift, freshly disemboweled from the dungeons of Bart's Books Bookstore. And renowned comedian Eddie Brill will reveal the state of today's comedy uh, more and the state of uh, the COVID-slammed entertainment business right after I introduce to you the company by whose good graces we are here today. And that firm is Prometheus Publishing, who invites you to take a look at its upcoming offering in the words of my wife's husband. Here it is, my friend, your complete source book of business humor. Here's your chance to dip in, seize a fistful of rye wit, and pass along to your fellow dream chasers at work. And if you believe, as we do, that the greatest wisdom flies in on the wings of laughter, you'll want to browse through and savor some of the lines 
like fine vintage wine. The volume culls together and combines the very best and funniest of uh, your host quips, the jovial repartee on the radio show, the art of CEO, and some sardonic final takeaway parting shots, which, uh, and <clears throat> so I hope that you will pick up a copy. May you read, laugh, share, and grow nearly wise. And uh, if you hold any lingering doubts about, uh, in the words of my wife's husband, just note the comedian Eddie Brill uh, wrote the foreword. And I believe, Eddie, didn't you write the testimonial that it's a shame they lo- no longer ban books in Boston? Was that you? <laughs> I'm not, uh, I don't think so. That wasn't me. <laughs> oh, okay. I just want to make sure. Well, carpe diem, my friend. Get at your word. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, let's continue more with, with the in- Witten and insights of, of uh, comedian Eddie Brill. Uh, Eddie, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about the business of your business, if we may. Every comedian's yeah. got the jokes and the laughters. He's got jokes laughter. He's got the wolf at the door. Uh, and I've always assumed that the major hurdle is landing that top agent to put you in the spotlight. Uh, how important is that, and how do you go about finding the right one? Well, you know, the, just be the best you possibly can, and then the agents and managers will come to you because word really? spreads. You know, that's how I would get a lot of comedians when I booked Letterman or even when I booked the Paper Moon Comedy Club in 1984 through 88. You know, people would say, hey, I just worked with this comedian, and he, she was terrific. You should use them. You know, the same thing with how I got the job at Letterman. I was recommended by another comedian. Now, how did I meet you? I met our terrific friend, Sharon Mon, who was, you know, this brilliant business person, but one of the most down-to-earth and funny and smart human beings. And because she recommended us to meet each other, and it was a no-brainer, and since I have no brain, it was perfect. Um, I just, you know... You know, that uh, reminds me of another friend's joke. But anyway, um, but Sharon was, uh, you know, it, it's, it's who you know. And, and, uh, and that, really, that really makes a big difference in, in business. Because like you said, if, if you could trust the people around you, you don't have to love them, but it's great when you can. But if you could trust those people to perform at a certain kind of a level and know that when you're doing you know, your best work, that you have a team that's on fire that everyone can respect and look up to, that's that's when things are rocking and beautiful. It sounds like what you're saying is is that I, the the really best promotional tool uh, is the mouth you use on stage and get around, meet people, make yourself known, and also would I add to that? Would it be fair to appreciate other people and compliment them? I think so. I think there's not. You know, that's a beautiful thing. You know, uh, you were mentioning earlier how I like to help young comics, but as a young comic, I got so much help from so many other comics, and they took the time to come up to me and say, hey, I like what you're doing. How about this idea? Or I like what you're doing. Keep doing it. And that makes a big difference. So if you can be kind to, to other people and to sincerely let them know that they're doing the right thing and not think of them as competition, but think of them as cohorts in this incredibly insecure world where, you know, fear and security is the, is the game that's, you know, to, you know, you want to make, a, you want to turn someone into a consumer Well, you, you create, you promote fear and insecurity. So how do you get around that by being in a community where fear and insecurity is not the, the stage that is just, you know, the byproduct of some poor uh, ex- executors. So, you know, the key no. really is to be the best. Steve Martin t- told somebody once, said, look, j- 
just be so funny they can't help it but using you. So you just be right. the best you possibly can. Agents and managers will come to you. You don't need an agent to be a big star. You don't need a manager to be a big star. A lot of the people okay. who go on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, they wouldn't have an agent or manager, but if they did well, the next day they'd get a phone call from an agent or manager. We'd like to make money off of you. You know, Would you like us to take your money, part of your money and, uh, and help push your career? You know, and that's, uh, and that's the way that goes. And, yes, if you can get a really top agent or a top manager to do the work for you, a top business uh, person to work for you, then, you know, you don't have to do the hard, that kind of hard work. What you end up doing is your craft, which is really where, what I like to focus on. Right, right. So there is. I, th- I think that's interesting. And, uh, by the way, is there a <clears throat> just one quick question? Uh, Quick uh, comment, because uh, once you do get the call from an agent, how do you know who's good? How do you judge who's good and who's bad? Or is, is that just because you could, you could tell, um, you could you could tell. Well, this person has done this beautiful thing for this person's career, or this person is a hard. You know, like, you know, there, if you look at like you know sports, and you see like a guy like Boris, who's the man, the agent who gets his people the top dollars. And he might be loved by everyone, but people don't care. Scott Boris gets the job done, and in whatever way he gets it done, you know, it works for his clients. So sometimes you need an agent who's a little ruthless, you know, someone without roots. And you get that person in there, and, uh, you know, and you get the, you know, so that time an agent works really well. I was lucky because in my career I had managers that I looked up to, managers I respected. Um, This girl, you know, this this. You know, there's two women in my life that are the most consistent women in my life were my two managers. And I like them because they were respected. They were highly respected in the industry. And they were people who, when they said something was going to get done, something got done. So they were reliable and they were amazing. And uh, I'm so glad that I, you know, had these two people. The first person that was uh, my manager ended up getting this job where she couldn't manage comedians anymore because she was an agent. So I, when I was booking right. Letterman, I found the agent, the manager who was, you know, doing the best, most incredible work with the comics. So, you know, that's what you right. look for someone to get the job done. And hopefully there's someone that you can trust will be honest with you. Okay. Yeah. Eddie, now it just, it just shift a little bit. It seems to me as a viewer uh, of uh, Tender that there is a much greater demand for comedy and comics Currently, am I right? And I mean, do you think our com- our our culture is demanding more comedy? And and if so, why? It's important, you know. Comedy has always been in demand, always because it does take the edge off. I mean, some people want to escape and don't want to hear about politics or don't want to hear about this. And yeah. you know, there and there's comedy for those kind of people. There are comedy. You know, some people don't people don't have the the stomach for the truth and they want to be taken on a fantasy trip. And that's very, very important, you know. And then there's people who want the truth and they want to laugh at the truth and they want to laugh at at the, you know, the best comics in the world, again, come from truth. Like, I'd rather hear, you know, I wish George Carlin or Bill Hicks or some of these people were still alive so they could talk about how horrible our, you know, society is and how ridiculous our government is and all that kind of stuff. And that's important. So it's important all along the way. Now, here's the thing. You never make fun of, like, you don't make fun of, like, you can't – all right, I'll give you an example. 9-11, if you do a 9-11 right. happens and the world is in right. tatters, 
So what you do is you can't make fun of 9-11. You can't make fun of the no. people who died. But you make fun of the scenario of the people outside of 9-11 and how they react to it. Um, the same thing right. I remember, right. Being, right. you know, same thing with COVID. You, there's nothing funny about people dying. You know, when someone does a homeless joke, I look down on that comedian because, you oh, know, no, what's yeah. homeless? It's the most tragic thing in the world. So when you're, oh, God, they, call it, they call it punching down. When you punch down right. and make fun I, of a to get a laugh, I say, you know, well, you're weak and you're, you know, you're, it's, I'm not, I'm not impressed. I'm, you know, it's, it's not really great. But if you could make a joke about how people who are not homeless um, react to homeless people. Like, you get nervous. Like, I don't ever want to be homeless, so you make a joke about your insecurities about it. That's the stuff. About your insecurity, Right. I see how they, that's a very good turn because the whole idea of people, that people want to, you want people to listen to you. And people who listen to those who have malice toward none. So you're absolutely right. Now, Eddie, you're, you're talking about COVID. Uh, what is... Uh, I mean, I, it's, I can think of no industry that's it's been as absolutely shut down and producing less uh, than the performing, art, the performing arts, except maybe Congress. Uh, what, are, what are comedians doing uh, what, to survive? First of all, I want to ask what, what, what the comedy industry is doing, but I also want to ask where you're appearing and where we can find you. But, but first, where's, what's the industry doing? How are people surviving? Well, it's very hard because you can't, you know, you... What, what's missing the most the, the best kind of comedy is when you're live with an audience and the audience sure, is packed sure. in tight and no one's wearing a mask and no one's worried about where they're spitting when they laugh and everyone is in there and like I said earlier you've got a symphony going you're playing you and the audience together are you know, playing this beautiful Brahms uh, lullaby then turned into this crazy Rachmaninoff you know, bum, 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 and, you know, that's you have this thing going. <laughs> so now since March, middle, middle of March, we haven't been able to do that. Some there, you know, right, I've right. done on Zoom, but it doesn't work at all. It's so poorly done, but it, it, you can't you know, hear the audience laughing. You're not in the room with them. It's really not that really terrific. I've done storytelling shows on Zoom, and that that's pretty fun. I've done a lot of interviews on Zoom where people, we talk about comedy and we break it down uh, like you and I are doing right now. I've done a lot right, of those right. kind of But, you know, if we go to, like, someone wants me to do this show in the middle of August and then there's another show in California in, in September. Well, first of all, the last four and a half months, I was totally booked across the board and every one of those gigs was canceled for obvious reasons. So what happens sure. is you have to find other ways to make money. I've been writing I've been, you know, uh, producing things, getting ready for projects that are going to happen as soon as things open up. You know, you have to, you have to be prepared. You can't sit around and mope and go, oh, the world's, you know, bumming me out. But you can't really have stand-up because having the audience be six feet apart, having to wear a mask, no, uh, you no, know, it's, just, no, no. it's not the same. So it's, this yeah, in August, no, no, it's, it's, yeah. it's like laughing toward a gas chamber. Uh, now you yeah. mentioned writing, though, and you've got great wordplay, and I, I, so I wanna, I wanna make sure that that uh, the folks hear about this. You have uh, a collection of 
really star-studded stories. You're a top talent, so you have met and verbally jousted with all your fellow top entertainers over the years. And you've taken pen in hand, and I'm wondering if we're looking forward to a possible book in the future. i gotta, I, I got to confess, my friend, that, that Eddie has allowed me a peek into a little of his manuscript. And these are inside glimpses of folks. You, you just want to hear it. Uh, well, for, Eddie, can you share one of us briefly? Can you share one of the tales with one of the talents? Well, that, that comes to you mind? know, I've written about 350 stories right now, and I could write another oh, 100 or so. And uh, <laughs> I just need a publisher. Get me a publisher or yeah. a publisher's out there. And, uh, you know, I've had some of the most incredible people in the industry, uh, people like Dick Cabot, who uh, I've got to know, Stephen Wright, the great comedian, and other comedians who say your, my stories are terrific. When, when is your book coming out? Well, I just need a publisher who's willing to want to publish these stories. And, you know, I, I have stories about working at the Letterman Show. I remember one of the stories that was, that there's a million stories, but it's hard to pick one. But I was t- talking about this yesterday. Sarah Michelle Geller, who, you know, was on, uh, you know, uh, a guest on Letterman, came on the show, right. and I had never met her before. And I've met a, mi- a million people. I've met so many you know, you mentioned Sophia Loren. She was my idol uh, throughout my childhood, you know, not only as a child, but as I grew older and got to listen to her talk and, you know, and watch her act. And she's just beautiful and, and lovely. I got to meet her because, you know, working at Letterman and uh, I got to meet my idol. I got to hang out with George Carlin. He called the, the Letterman show and said, who was that great comedian on last night? And luckily it was me. You know, I've got to, a oh lot of Oh, my gosh, Eddie, that's fabulous. Through. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. But I had never met Sarah Michelle Geller. Now, when Dave did the show, when the guests would come out, I'd be standing just to Dave's left. So one time Sarah right. Michelle comes out, and she looks over to me and waves, and it's like, okay. And I look behind me. There's nobody behind me. After the segment's <laughs> over, she comes up, and she gives me a big hug and, and says, how you doing? I'm said, I'm fine. I, you know... So she leaves, and Dave goes, how do you know her? I go, I don't know. I've never met her. He goes, it seems like your best friends. I go, I know. I think she thinks I'm somebody else. So then she comes on the show a year later, and the same thing. Hey, how are you? And good to see you. And, you know, I'm thinking maybe she knows my stand-up, or she, we have mutual friends, you know, because I knew she was on the, um, sure. a show with this guy, Anthony Head, who was a great actor who I uh, worked with back in London. And, uh, yeah, so but, you know, so... So she just kept coming back, and Letterman and I were laugh every time. Like, she thinks you're, I don't know who she thinks you are, but she loves you, and she's hugging you. And well, yes. so finally, like, whatever, her, whatever her perception is of you, she surely loves it. That's great. Yeah, she's oh. a sweet person, and, and, you know, she's married to Freddie Prince Jr., and I started saying, how's Freddie doing? Like, I knew him, but I, you know, I don't. I knew his his father, but, you know, it's just it was just really, really sweet. And then, like, the fifth I time she came I What's think it's that? so good that you have been able to communicate. Uh, it, obviously, you have something that you share. That The laughter that you share with the audience is something that you share in your personal life, and I think that's wonderful. And, Eddie, if I were looking to brighten up my meeting, my audiences, uh, how could I get in touch with you and, and, uh, or, or, uh, and perhaps make a day to work up some project with you. I, I, well, I, I can't yeah, there's a lot of social media right now, and my name is Eddie, E-D-D-I-E, Brill, B-R-I-L-L. If you go to Eddie underscore Brill on Twitter, you can find me there. My brand new website huh? is going to come out like within like a two weeks from now, so maybe when this airs, it'll oh. be out. It'll be eddiebrill.com, 
Um, you can okay. find me on Facebook, which is, you know, packed, but, and also on Instagram at, at Eddie Comics, E-D-D-I-E-C-O-M-I-C. So Twitter, Eddie underscore Brill, Eddie Comic on uh, um, Instagram, EddieBrill.com very soon. Uh, brand new website there, and uh, or, or just uh, you know, just come to a comedy club near you when when they let us back in to be able to do what we love for a living. Excellent, Eddie. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. This has been just a howl, and I have learned so much, as I'm sure our audience says. And I hope we're going to be able to seduce you back on uh, as things get a little more open. Would you be willing to do that? I uh, consider me seduced. <laughs> All right. Color me, color me to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, well, as we round out today's feast, I am Bart Jackson, your curator of business wisdom, leaving you with today's quotation. When in doubt, mumble. When in trouble, delegate. And when in charge, ponder. <laughs> and as a hint to the author of this particular quote, this businessman and lampooning social critic authored The Bureaucratic Zoo and How to Be a Sincere Phony. <laughs> and remember, if you know the author of this quote, just send uh, that author's name right off, as you believe him or her to be, and right off to info at bartsbooks.com. That's I-N-F-O at bartsbooks.com to win an absolutely career-changing gift from the dungeons of Bart's Books Bookstore. And as a parting shot, in the words of my wife's husband, rumor has it that with 40 million of us out of work, Americans might rediscover the value of thrift and begin spending money only when we have it. Our political leaders are terrified the government might be held to the same standard. (coughs) And to you gleefully sharing our feast, I hope that you've enjoyed the art of the CEO as much as Eddie and I have enjoyed bringing it to you. And remember that you may download this in all our shows by visiting theartofthecEO.com. And finally to you, who have honored us with your time, may I say as always, it has been a privilege, and I thank you. <laughs>